0: I'm Travis Bader, and this is the Silvercore podcast. Join me as I discuss matters related to hunting, fishing, and outdoor pursuits with the people and businesses that comprise the community. If you're new to Silvercore, be sure to check out our website, www.silvercore.ca, where you can learn more about courses, services, and products that we offer, as well as how you can join the Silvercore club, which includes 10 million in North America wide liability insurance to ensure you are properly covered during your outdoor adventures. We have observed that the Silvercore Club has a high number of first responders in its ranks, which totally makes sense given the quality of person that our club attracts. I am so excited to pre-announce a full tuition paid scholarship for one lucky person wishing to be trained as a firefighter through the Smart Fire Academy. This is a massive leg up for anyone with aspirations of being a firefighter. Follow us on social media and watch our website for details on how you could win. All right, listeners, welcome back to the Silvercore Podcast. If you're enjoying what you hear, please like, comment, and subscribe, and make sure to share this with others. Today I'm joined by Ian Runkle, a renowned Canadian criminal defense lawyer who specializes in firearms law. Welcome Ian.
1: Thank you. And I should comment that, uh, specialized is probably the wrong term here because, uh. Specialized is a term that is restricted by the law society and they is only for people who have sort of been qualified as such. And they don't, so far as I know, actually have a qualification program. So it's not a term I'm sort of allowed to use, but I do have an interest in firearm law. It's been a, an area of fascination for me pretty much since actually law school is sort of where I fell in love with firearm law. And the reason for that is that, uh, uh, so law school is stressful and it's kind of famously stressful Yeah. It's, and I sort of, I got to a point where I needed a hobby and the sort of main contenders for hobbies when you're in law school are kind of alcohol related. Mm. And I went, I need a hobby that doesn't just involve drinking because that doesn't seem like a great life strategy long-term, you know, so I need (laughs) something sort of a little healthier. And, and so I remembered I'd enjoyed going plinking as a kid and I thought, you know, target shooting seems like a, not a bad approach. It's something I can do on my own. I can do it when I want to. So I went and got my license and that was not too complicated of a process, but you know, it's, it's a process. And after that I had the thought of, you know, I really don't want to be uh, I don't want to be the guy who gets in trouble because he doesn't know the law. And especially mm. as you know, as a lawyer or, you know, prospective lawyer, you really want to make sure that you've got all that stuff down because the court really takes a dim view of lawyers committing crimes. Mm-hmm. I thought, I don't want to sort of blunder into something. You know, the storage rules are complicated. The transport rules are complicated. Let's really learn some of this. You know, just, and at this point, I wasn't thinking I want to do firearm law. I was just thinking, it's important that I know these things because I want to stay out of trouble. And my first thought digging into it was actually, I am really kind of dumb. Because I was looking through all this and saying, I don't understand this. A lot of this doesn't make any sense to me. And obviously it has to make sense because this is, you know, the firearm law. So I must be a little dumb here. And
0: sure, okay.
1: that was sort of my initial thought. Yeah. And then as I dug more into it, it was like, no, it's not me. I'm understanding it. It's just that the law is so complicated and in many places badly written that I went, huh. And there were places where it seemed like the courts and the you know lawyers maybe weren't understanding it because there are places where uh, the law splits. And what seems to have happened in those cases is that an issue gets decided one way by, in some cases, binding courts. And then it gets heard again and, Nobody seems to be aware of those other prior cases, and so Mm. they don't get brought to the attention of the courts, they don't, uh, you know, they're not mentioned. Mm. And then the court goes and finds a different way, and then suddenly you've got these two separate interpretations. And so that makes it very difficult to, you know, when somebody says, can I do this? I go, well, it really depends on which case, you know, of these two sort of branching things, the court decides is the right one.
0: Interesting,
1: And so that kind of stuff is fascinating to me. I love the puzzles. I love the trying to figure all this stuff out. And so once I started finding just how much of that there was, I was like, this is what I want to do. And I know that that's a kind of a terrible way to get into a, into a profession is where you're saying, this is so badly written that I just that I love it, but
0: <laughs> you like the game.
1: I, I mean, it's, there's, gotta love s- it. there's sort of a puzzle to it. You're, yeah. you're trying to solve like, here is what the law says. How does that actually work in practice? And, you know, is this something where we can, you know, are there places where this can be massaged in some fashion? Are there places where, um, uh, where gaps in the law can be used to a client's advantage, or alternately uh, places where people can get trapped because Mm. there's all sorts of situations where you can think you're sort of right with the law, but be wrong about that. Mm. And uh, so I try to clear those up for people because I hate seeing situations where people who I consider morally blameless are being dragged before the courts. Even if they're ultimately acquitted, um, there have been cases where I thought the law was quite clear on something, but somebody ends up spending thousands of dollars fighting it.
0: Mm. Punishment by process.
1: I mean, it's not intended to be punishment. They're not, but I don't think that the accused ever really thinks of it as not a punishment.
0: Right. Totally.
1: You know, and I've had times where, you know, we've had to go to trial and, uh We've won quite handily. And the client says, Well, how do I get my money back? Because, you know, you're expensive and I don't you know, I don't fault you for that, but can I get my money back from the crown? And it's like, No. Mm. And, you know, that's always a tough pill because people are like, You mean I'm just out this money? And it's like, Yeah. And, you know, these are people who could see that I'd done good work for them, that sure. I fought hard for them. But it's still kind of a rough thing to say, like, why did I have to hire somebody? Whereas, you know, if you think of sort of analogs of, like, my car is parked out back, I can't see it right now. If somebody went and set fire to it, I probably wouldn't notice. I'd probably find out when the fire department or the police were knocking on my door going, Mm -hmm. did you know your car is on fire? Um, But if they found the person who did that to me, I'd be able to go after them and say, you owe me another car, right? You Mm -hmm. owe me the value of this car because you set fire to the one I had. But when people deal with sort of being harmed by the justice system, by, you know, improper charges, there is no process to say, I I need that back. Um, I tell, you know, one thing I tell people, and uh, I actually sort of crib this off uh, Marie Heinen, who's famous... uh, Ontario lawyer, just a real heavy hitter and inspiration, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. But uh, she was talking about how she tells clients that, you know, I can't make you make it like it never happened. Right. But we can try to get you to the best possible future scenario of all the possible futures. That's what we're trying to aim for. And I think people sometimes have a real hard time with the whole notion of you know i'm never going to be made whole i'm never going to be made right from this yeah so i know i would yeah well and i so that's why i try to warn people and you know and say like hey this is a legal landmine
0: hmm. and
1: you need to be aware that it's there don't you know don't go playing in that field because it's going to go badly for you
0: <laughs> well you've brought up this is going to be a fun podcast you've brought up a <laughs> bunch of things i've been taking some notes as you're talking here and One thing I should touch on because we jumped right into this is you've got a massively growing social media presence under the brand Runkle of the Bailey. And so people who have heard of this, and I'm going to, I'm going to just put this out here. I'm going to say a fair number of our listeners have probably already heard of you, but for those who haven't heard of Runkle of the Bailey, we're going to have some links in our blog and there's going to be links attached to this podcast as well. So you can go check it out. You've got a YouTube channel, you've got a Patreon channel, you're all over Twitter and you, you're sharing your thoughts and comments on laws and politics, but there's definitely a a firearms flavor to it. So I just want to get that plug in, check it out. It'll be in the bio. You won't regret it. There's a lot to learn there. You know, we talked about this earlier about a little, uh, uh, disclaimer at the get-go that nothing you talk about here is going to be legal advice, but I figured I'll throw that in there, whether it's worth a grain of salt or not saying it, we'll uh, make sure we get it in.
1: Yeah. And I mean, if you ever are contemplating doing something like I can, the law is full of exceptions and weird sort of corner cases. So if you're ever saying like, I want to consider doing something or, you know, Whenever the law starts becoming personal, you want to decide whether you should do something or not, or the police are at your door, that kind of thing. Once it's sort of outside the academic field, you should, you know, really talk to a lawyer about it, about your situation specifically, because sometimes, you know, when we're talking about the law, we might speak in generalities, but you might be personally within an exception. And that might be to your benefit or to your detriment, because mm. there's you know, it might be like, this is okay, unless you're doing the specific thing you're doing. Mm -hmm. So.
0: Talking about police at the door. Have you seen that? I'm sure you've seen it, that YouTube video with the uh, very fast talking counsel in the States who gives half of his time to talk about what a, what he would advise a client to do if the police are at the door and the other half he gives over to a, a, a police officer to uh, give his thoughts on, have you seen that YouTube video?
1: Yes. I think that one's titled, uh, don't talk to the police. I uh, he's a law professor. I forget where he is. Uh, I believe, but, uh, I mean, there's a little bit in that, that's sort of specifically American, mm. but by and large, uh, his, you know, what he tells people there is solid and mm-hmm. the reasoning for it is solid. People don't really realize how dangerous a police officer at your door is. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean dangerous in the sense of, you know, this officer is probably not going to draw a sidearm and shoot you.
0: Right. You know,
1: absent you giving them a very good reason,
0: which mm-hmm.
1: I recommend not doing, but <laughs> you know, you know, don't pull a knife on the cop. It's not going to end well for you, but. Right. Uh, people go in and the thing I hear all the time from people is, oh, I just want to clear this up. Like I am in the right. Mm-hmm. And I just want to clear this up and it's like, first of all, you don't know if you're in the right. Um, You just don't because you don't have the legal background. You don't have all the details. Uh, Second, you don't know what the cops investigating. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't know um, and you don't know what's dangerous necessarily. And even if you do know all of these things, you're not going to be thinking straight enough to navigate this. I saw a talk from another lawyer quite recently, um, and they gave the example of a, uh, a sexual assault, uh, allegation and all the police needed from the interview was an admission that the person had met the complainant. Mm. That was it. That was all they wanted. And so that admission, which seems super low key can be a big deal. Um, Mm -hmm. I've seen people buried on admissions, like, is this your car? That kind of thing. Right. You know, things that you don't think are dangerous questions can actually be super dangerous questions. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes even your demeanor, your manner of speaking can end up being used against you. And, you know, I I had one, uh, I ran a trial and some of the evidence against my, you know, that came up was from his police interview where he didn't say anything super incriminating, but just his, uh, uh, his accent, his voice, Mm. because now they've got a recording of that. And then they can use it to match and say, is this the person you heard? Right. And you know, so just that recording can be dangerous. Um, you really want to be careful about all of that and. Also, the other thing is most people don't realize how many things are crimes and how many things are, you know, potentially forbidden. Mm
2: -hmm. Um,
1: One that I see all the time is, uh, and this is from a case that I really dislike. It's the case of the Queen and Falauka. Right. And it's a case where a guy who was being a, quite frankly, he was being a jackass.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, He was riding the SkyTrain in Vancouver.
0: I remember Um, this one.
1: He had a rifle wrapped up, you know, or tucked under his jacket. I forget his precise means of sort of hiding it, but it was sort of, you know, concealed in that fashion. Somebody noticed it. And then when the, you know, when he was asked why he had it, he joked that he was going to go on a shooting spree, which makes him super unsympathetic, right? Nobody is on this guy's side. um, But... What the court's decision ended up being is basically that so long as the firearm can't be seen, it's counted as concealed, even if your purposes for doing so are are good. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you're trying to not you know do anything nefarious, you're not hiding it because you're planning on going up to somebody and shooting them or anything like that. But simply, you know, things like you want to prevent uh, your firearms from being stolen. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want your neighbors to know that they're there so that your neighbors can't break in and take them or you don't want um, to alarm people. Mm-hmm. But the court, you know, so you'll see people saying, oh, look, you know, this guitar case would make an excellent uh, firearm transport case. And it's like, well, the Supreme Court's kind of said no on that. And, you know, you should be aware of that because as much as I don't typically see people charged for it, there's no reason why they couldn't.
0: You know, and and that was a crazy one. I remember the fulloko one that was, um, you're right, totally not sympathetic at all, but wouldn't intent don't, don't you think I'm not a lawyer, but don't you think there'd be, have to be some level of intent in concealing? And, And I'll tell you why I asked this one after, after.
1: Well, uh, the Supreme, I mean, there's always sort of some level of intent, but the Supreme court has said that the. Uh, The appropriate level of intent for being punishable is that you intentionally placed it into a, you know, a situation where it wouldn't be seen Mm. so that you, you know, so for instance, or, you know, where it might not be detectable in some fashion. So uh, you, you take your shotgun and you put it into a, you know, a bag or a map case or something like that, where it's, you know, hidden. Mm -hmm. They were saying you don't need to have sort of bad intentions. It doesn't need to be a situation where you need to, uh, what is it, uh, where you need to be going after somebody, Yeah. you know, the men's ray on that is really light, um, Mm. and so that's what we're stuck with. It's not a situation where it has to be like, you're planning on robbing a bank or anything like that.
0: Yeah. I remember I had a, a call once I was asked to put together a, a report for a local law firm. They had a fellow who's a trapper and he had a revolver and licensed to have this thing. Good to go. Uh, I was talking with a conservation officer, then they called in the police and, uh, they were concerned because. His revolver was on his hip, it was raining and cold and windy out and he'd put a jacket on over top of it. And when they asked, where's his gun? Cause he mentioned he had one. He says, like, he's not going for it. He's telling us right down here. And they start looking through his vehicle for it. He said, no, 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 over here. Right. And he's motioning with his head. The listeners can't see me making the head motion. It's here. And, uh, they tried to charge him with having a concealed weapon. And I'm not entirely sure how that one ended, I'm guessing positive cause I never had to go into court to, uh, to, to, give any information on that one, but, um, it, that was where I was introduced to the Falako one cause I was a part of, uh, his whole case there.
1: Yeah. And you know, it's, uh, most people of course are not in a position where they can carry a revolver around on their hip. Right. But, uh, you know, you, where you see it, uh, quite commonly is situations like people with a pocket knife. Mm. And people say, well, it's a pocket knife. Where was it? It was in my pocket. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, the main question can end up being, is this a, uh, is this a weapon? Mm -hmm. But let's say you say something stupid to the police, which is almost anything that you say to the police. (laughs) Yes. But, you know, people, what happens is like, you know, let's say you're driving along and you got a, a speeding ticket a while back and you were busy, you know, maybe a family member died, maybe your house burned down, maybe all sorts of things, right? You know, Mm -hmm. life gets in the way. And so then you forget about the ticket and in your absence, they have your trial day for the ticket. They convict you in absence. And then they give you a day that you have to pay. They send you a notice, but again, you know, you're still dealing with life fallout and this speeding ticket is the last thing on your mind. Well, eventually they'll issue a warrant for your arrest, you know, that you've got these unpaid fines. Mm -hmm. And so then you get arrested and you get taken down to the station and you're going to have to pay this, you know, this ticket to get out. But in the course of getting arrested, you're going to get patted down because the cop does not want you in his car. If maybe you've got a handgun in your, you know, your jacket, Mm -hmm. um, maybe you've got, you know, A brick of C4, whatever it is, you know, they don't want you having. Mm -hmm. So they pat you down to make sure that you don't have anything dangerous and they find this knife. And the question they'll always ask is, what's this for? And a lot of the time people say, oh, well, you know, it's a real dangerous neighborhood. Uh, So that's why I've got this knife is because, you know, it's a real dangerous neighborhood and I might need to protect myself. And now they're charged with carrying a concealed weapon because now they've just admitted that it's there as a weapon and that um and it was carried in their pocket and i can you know in almost every case you're talking about people who've never used this knife violently would not use this knife violently except if they were in danger for themselves in a real way you know somebody else has attacked them you know these are not sort of dangerous people um but they're just people who are maybe a little too honest Mm. Um, whereas sometimes I see sort of more practice, you know, seasoned, uh, experienced people in front of the courts, you know, which means that they've got a a criminal record that might be a small novel and the cop asks, why do you have this? And they say something along the lines of get effed and that's a much better statement, believe it or not. I mean, people like to police. I recommend that generally because you don't want to make the police officer, have a personal interest in you, but still you don't want to give anything away. And that statement of I had this for self-defense is a terrible thing to say. Mm. And is actually worse than the, you know, the go after yourself statement at the end of the day, because that guy didn't admit anything. No kidding. And you know, it might be that the first guy who made the admission has only ever used this knife for or you know opening chip bags. And the second guy has stabbed several people in his life. Mm-hmm. And it's still that second guy who's more likely to walk in that case. <laughs> it's, uh,
0: yeah. Well, that's where experience comes in, I guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's probably that he's done some jail time to learn that lesson, mm-hmm. you know, and had a few rounds with lawyers saying, really, why did you say that to the police yeah. before they learned it? But, uh. People don't necessarily like the, uh, they don't like hearing, I will tell you, when they're sitting in your office and you say, you would have walked but for you talk to the police.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that'd be a hard pill to swallow.
1: It, it definitely is, especially with people who view themselves as sort of law-abiding and very much pro-social people. I mean... Uh, I've talked to people who have been like family members of police officers.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, one guy said, basically, it's going to be real hard at Thanksgiving dinner because I've always had this very positive view of the police. And now that's been very much shaken. And, you know, I'm i am going to have to decide whether or not I bring this up. And we might have a fight over this at <laughs> Thanksgiving dinner. And I was just like,
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, I've raised in a family of law enforcement and seeing, being around law enforcement all my life, and it's just like any other profession. You're going to have the the small few who are really good, the yep. small few who are really bad and the rest of the majority who are just plugging through the day, getting their way to retirement. And if it looks really difficult, maybe they'll leave it for somebody else. And it's just human nature, right? Oh, for sure.
1: I mean, I've told people, I said, like, there are police officers out there that I would absolutely like, I mean, I got destroyed in a trial at one point because there was a small charter violation that the officer had screwed up and he got up on the stand and admitted he screwed up and why he did and, you know, so forth. And that just flattened me mm -hmm. uh, because I was hoping that this charter violation would be a bigger deal than it was. But, uh, once he gets up there and just, you know, was... And he basically said, I, I screwed up. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I've seen officers go above and beyond for things. I've seen uh, officers just really, uh, you know, really sort of sure. go through heroic and exceptional circumstances. Sure. Um, and I've seen officers who, quite frankly... And I'm not going to name any names, but there's, you know, some people who I've just thought like, wow, you should be in jail. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people are just doing their job, you know, the same way that the guy, you know, at the McDonald's who gets your order wrong probably isn't doing it because he hates you. Right. You know, he's probably not like, you know, screw that Runkle guy. I'm going to make sure he gets, he doesn't get his McNuggets. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's probably just that he's going through his job. He's not trying to do a bad job, but he's also really not super invested in it either. Right. You know, just, and that's fine, but it also results in some mistakes and it results sometimes in them saying like, listen, um, we'll let the, you know, you said that you've got an innocent reason for having this knife. We'll let the court sort it out. Mm-hmm. That'll be somebody else's problem down the road. And Unfortunately for you, that might mean thousands of dollars of sorting it out down the road.
0: So, and I know we're going to talk about some firearm stuff, but, um, knives that open under centrifugal force, do you see many people actually getting charged under that? Cause my question is how much centrifugal force? I mean, um, if you, if you attach it to a big long two by four and whip the thing out, you're going to get any folding knife to open up.
1: So the test is basically, could a person do that, sure. um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the average person. Mm. Um, it can be the biggest, beefiest police officer on the force and police officers tend as a category to be, you know, t- stronger and more athletic than the average Canadian. Sure, um, you know, so like the viewers can't see, but I've got scrawny, skinny little arms. So I might take a knife and I want to test it to make sure it's legal. And I might yard on this thing as hard as I can. And it just doesn't budge. Mm. But when you get a guy who, you know, who can bench press my weight with ease all day and not tire, that guy might be able to snap that open. And so that would still put it in the category of illegal,
2: Mm. which
1: kind of makes it interesting that your court case can depend on basically, can they find a big enough cop to, <laughs>
0: <laughs> to whip put, it out it, or somebody's got it, the technique down pad.
1: Yeah. But I mean, it excludes, uh, things like mechanical assistance in the sense of either using a long lever okay. or, you know, if you attach this to some sort of spinning apparatus that's been really fast and then stopped suddenly to flick it out, mm. um, you know, that would also you know, if you built some like super powered robot arm to flick things out, Mm. I mean, you could build in theory, a robot arm that could flick the, uh, the blade head off of a fixed blade knife. Right. So, you know, (laughs) there's a, you know, there, the limit is basically human capabilities, but not necessarily your capabilities, but you do get cases, uh, that hinge on whether the accused knew it Mm. because sometimes it's like, there's one where they had a big beefy police officer there and it took the police officer in court, something like six tries to get it open. Mm. And they said, okay, the knife is itself banned. It's a prohibited knife because it's possible to flick it open. But I accept that this person didn't know that it Mm. was possible to flick open because it was real hard for this police officer to do. Right. So, uh, All of this is real complicated, but do you, do I see people get charged? Yes, I do. Um, And I mean, most of us don't typically come to the attention of law enforcement all the time, but you know, I've seen people picked up and charged with things that are, you know, somebody who's watching TV too loud and the neighbors call it in and the police think it's a domestic violence situation when actually it was the TV. Hmm. And, you know, the police search them and find this knife and go, yep, that's a flick knife. Mm. And some of these knives that are readily are actually readily available. I did a video where I noted that, uh, uh, Home Depot at the time, I don't know, I haven't checked recently, but I assume probably still, uh, was advertising the flick openable properties of some (laughs) of their knives. Like they literally had a, a video of some people, uh. Flicking it open, and you know this is a selling point. Sure. And you know, quite frankly, there's all sorts of situations where, for lawful reasons, having a knife that flicks open is fantastic. Sure. I mean, if you're a climber and you are, you know, clinging to a rope 400 feet above the ground, and you need to cut something, um, two-handed operation is a real disadvantage. Hmm. You know, if you are in a confined space, um, somebody was talking to me about their seatbelt knife, you know, a knife that they had for the purpose of getting out of the seatbelt. And now this thing, I don't know if it would count as a knife for the purposes of this law, because it was actually a uh, sort of a a hooked, contained blade. Right. You wouldn't really be able to use this against a person. Hmm. Um, But it folded open. And I said to them, I said, I don't think that's what you want. And they said, well, why not? And I said, let's say you're in a situation where you've been in a car accident, you're pinned, your vehicle's half crushed Mm -hmm. and you need to get out of your seatbelt right now. Can you guarantee you've got two hands to open this up in order to get that seatbelt cutter open? Mm -hmm. And they went, huh? I'm like, you might be doing this, reaching out one handed to pick up the seatbelt cutter and doing that. And you might be doing it in fact with one broken arm that has no strength to it. You know, so there's, um, you know, I've talked to people who have one hand, like they literally lost it. You know, guy who's a veteran lost, you know, a hand serving overseas. And he's saying, what do you mean? I need a two handed opening pocket knife. You know, I've only got one.
0: The funny thing on that is what's faster than having a knife that can flick open is one that's already open and that's perfectly legal.
1: Oh, I mean, you could have a fixed blade knife all day and in fact, a fixed blade knife is never going to run into the flick knife problem. You can't get charged with having a flick knife on a fixed blade.
0: Yeah. It just, some of these things boggle the mind, but when I was doing some research here, I came across, speaking of boggling the mind. I came across a, I think it was an ATT condition challenge. It had your name attached to it, and uh, <laughs> the the part that really got me because I've heard it on more than one occasion was, we are not denying you <laughs> issuance of privilege certificate authorization, whatever it might be. Uh, we're just not giving it to you.
1: Yeah, it, and uh, that how was does a that fun word.
0: Work. How does that work?
1: Well, in Alberta right now, it doesn't. Okay. So the argument that, uh, so what happened here in this case was, uh, Alberta had been in the practice of putting gunsmiths on all long-term authorizations to transport. And this makes sense if you think about it, because you might have a problem where your firearm fails in an unsafe way or possibly fails in a way where it might be illegal for it to continue to exist. Mm -hmm. You know, your gun, something has broken in it and it's now firing full auto. Mm -hmm. You don't want that. You want to correct this immediately, if not sooner. Mm -hmm. Now, let's say it's Friday and it's 4.30 p.m. CFO has gone home for the day. CFO is not coming back tomorrow and they're not coming back the day after. They're going to be there first thing Monday morning. And you're thinking, but I want to take this to a gunsmith right now. You know, I want to solve this, or maybe Mm. you've got a stuck cartridge
2: Mm.
1: and you're thinking, I want to get this cartridge out because this is a potentially dangerous situation. I don't want, you know, I don't want to be sitting here rocking a potentially loaded gun. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the, uh, so in Alberta, the practice was, we'll put gunsmiths on your long-term authorizations to transport. In Ontario, their practice was, we will not do that.
2: Mm.
1: So a couple of people in Ontario brought challenges saying, we want long, we want gunsmiths on our long-term ATTs. And they won in part because the practice in Alberta was to allow it. Interesting. And so the response to that was they got all the CFOs together and they said, you can't put those on anybody's anymore. So Alberta then changed their policy to remove gunsmiths from all the long-term authorizations to transport. So I got one of these new, I renewed my license, got a new long-term ATT, and of course it does not have gunsmiths on it anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I say, I want gunsmiths back on it, please. And so I applied saying, I specifically want my my long-term ATT to include gunsmiths. And so they said, well, we've issued you an ATT, a long-term ATT, um, but it's not going to include gunsmiths and (laughs) tough. And I sort of went, but that's not what I wanted. Right. So they said, "Um, tough. So I brought a challenge and their argument was that the court didn't have jurisdiction to, uh, to review it because they didn't refuse me an ATT. They just granted me a different one than the one I asked for. Mm. And the court did not have a whole lot of patience for that argument. And so they, uh, the court basically said, sorry, um, if you are not granting it as requested, you know, if you're leaving requested things out, then that is at least a refusal in part. And so you've got to, you know, go through that proper process, right. um, they don't like that decision. <laughs> <laughs> but you know one of the arguments one of the things that they got challenged with at uh, in court was you know the the justice asked you know so let me get this straight if somebody asked for an att to go to the range and you instead said no we're on, we're going to issue you an att but it says you can take your guns only to the police station for disposal mm-hmm. would that not count as a refusal and they said no it would not and the justice was like That makes no sense to me. Not at all. So, you know, obviously going with their argument would have permitted some pretty drastic abuses and dodging of the whole, uh, dodging of the review process. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately the, uh, ultimately the, the court said, no, you know, that's a refusal, but we're still seeing that kind of argument. I mean, in my view, that's sort of what's going on with this whole, uh, AR 15 thing where they sure. said, you know, oh, we're not revoking your certificate. We're just declaring it as having been administratively expired. It's like, well, that's not a thing. Um, you're just <laughs> making up, you know, oh, it was nullified.
0: Yeah. It's a thing but, now. Cause we just said it.
1: Yeah. they're trying to sort of write their own law is what it seems like to me. Mm And ultimately, a court may or may not agree with me. This is going to be a major battle. I think it's likely to end up at the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, because we've got court battles going on in every province, so far as I'm aware,
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: multiple court battles, and they're coming up with different results, including within provinces. They're coming up with different results. Mm -hmm. So I don't see how this goes anywhere other than the Supreme Court which, uh, might end up being my second trip to Ottawa. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you brought up, well, a couple of things I was writing down here. So one is just as a bit of an aside, you talk about, well, bringing a firearm to the police for destruction. If memory serves me correctly, there's actually exemptions within, there's provisions within the criminal code that'll allow for taking a firearm if it's being done immediately to the police for destruction. Is there not?
1: Uh, I- I'd have to check. I believe you still need an authorization of transport for restrictance. Um, and the other thing is that the police really don't like it. If you show up unannounced with a firearm, no, no. Um, my grandmother did this and this was some time ago <laughs> and I can tell this story, uh, because she's dead and therefore is not likely to be prosecuted or, and she's also not going to get upset with me, at least not that I know of, right. um, for telling the story. But apparently there was a handgun in the family that, uh, and this was like one of these old, uh, sort of self-defense, uh, ladies purse pistols kind of thing. Sure. Um, one that's able to hit a man-sized target at basically grabbing reach range, yep. you know, people tried it out. It shot a group apparently about the size of a barn. And so <laughs> it was not a great gun. Nobody wanted this thing and it got turned, you know, so she was figuring I got to turn this into the police. And so she walked into the police station, apparently, and told them, I have something for you. And the officer's like, okay, and pulls out this gun out of her purse. And the officer like snatches it out of her hand and was super unhappy (laughs) about this. And she did not feel that she was well treated by that officer in that circumstance.
0: Yeah, probably not. Probably not.
1: She she felt that the officer was very rude and, you know, maybe should have, you know, given her a little more regard in that moment. And I'm going, (laughs) okay, but you could have been killed. So don't, don't show up at the police station unannounced with firearms. I've had a few situations where I've done, you know, turn ins and it's always been a matter of just so you know, here, I'm going to be bringing a firearm to you. Here's what I'm going to look like, you know, let's work this out ahead of time Mm -hmm. and I mean, in some of those cases, it's been a situation where, like, I walk into a busy police station, I sort of give the hand wave to the person behind the scenes, and they're like, let's take you over somewhere else. Right. So that we're not doing this in front of everybody's view. It's very, you know, very subdued, very, you know, but you really don't want to get anyone excited over the fact that you've got a gun in a police station. No kidding. You know, sometimes these happen, like, at the back door. It's just like, I will come to the back door. I will call you when I'm here. Um, you guys could come up and I will just pop my trunk and you guys can pick it up out of there and,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: everybody's got their own different procedures for it, but getting an ATT so that they know it's coming is not a bad idea.
0: Yeah, no kidding. I, uh, I'm going to have to reread that section again, but obviously yeah, I, not a lawyer and I'm not, uh, I always stuck in the back of my head, I thought the way I'm reading this, it looks like they might have an exemption if it's bringing let's say you find a gun and it's not in a safe area and you want to bring it to uh, the police. There's Uh, a different,
1: uh, there's a different provision for if you find one, right? Uh, and that covers all sorts of exceptions as well, but that's different than if it's your gun.
0: Okay. And it was a found one that, uh, that I read and I've always wondered. What's to stop these guys, these gang bangers from going around and say, oh, I just found this gun. I was just taking it to the police station when he pulled me over. I'm so glad you're here.
1: Well, and the thing is, is they absolutely could say that, but I guarantee you, you know, if you are turning in like, let's say you're off in the woods and you know, you find a handgun mm. and you know, you call the cops. As soon as you find this handgun, it's been clearly, you know, chucked off an overpass mm. and you know, it's in the bushes and you come across it. And you call the police say, I found this handgun. I'm not touching it, but I want you to know where I am. Come pick it up Mm -hmm. and the police come pick it up and they take it to ballistics. And it turns out it was used in a murder three days prior. Mm. I guarantee you, you are on the list of people they are investigating Mm
0: -hmm. with
1: respect to, you know, what's going on with this gun, you know, because they will absolutely be, They'll absolutely have some questions for you. Totally. It's it's not going to be just like, oh, well, thanks for the gun. Um, we have no follow-up questions and we don't need your name. Mm. Like, you know.
0: Well, that's where they go see somebody like yourself, get legal counsel who has the privilege of being able to drop something off and saying, I don't got to tell you nothing.
1: Yep. And, you know, hiring a lawyer to do that sort of thing is a fantastic way to go. Mm. Um, and you know, you can have situations where it's just like. Um, Hey, um, I'm a lawyer, here's what's going on. You know, somebody wanted this reported, it's being reported. And they're like, well, who's your client? Fun fact about that. No, (laughs) well, we really need to know who your client is again. mm, No. Right. And you know, the cops don't like that of course, but, uh, you know, that might be better for your happiness.
0: Well, one. You know, we've got opt-in and opt-out provinces, CFOs that are appointed federally or appointed provincially. Do you find on firearms related issues that there's a lot of ball passing when you try and push something forward as in, no, no, this is a federal issue. No, no, it's a provincial issue.
1: What I see more is that the feds have really tried to, uh, you know, take as much power as they can. Okay. Um, they, they. They don't want to pass the buck. They want they want the buck,
0: yep.
1: um, and so uh, Bill C twenty one, for instance, proposes uh, to take some power from the uh, from the provincial CFOs. Right. And so you know, it's very much a situation where they're saying, you know, we want to, uh, you know, we want to make sure the CFOs can't do things that are currently within their power. Right. And, uh, so, I mean, there was the whole firearms reference, which was basically the big question of can the federal government legislate in this area? Because previously it was sort of viewed as a provincial responsibility. Mm. So,
0: so yeah. You know, I, I'm sure we're talking earlier and you've been really busy with C21. I mean, there's <laughs> so, there's so much insanity to unpack in that one.
1: Uh, it's a jam packed bill full of things I don't agree with. And I think a lot of Canadians would have problems with, to be you know honest.
0: If you were to, I, I just did a podcast, uh, a couple days ago, and by the time the listeners are listening to this, it'll be a longer span between it, but, uh. The, uh, the opinion in there that was with, uh, Daniel Fritter of caliber press and Ryan Stacey of IBI. And they're talking about the political side of, of all of this. And, uh, thinking that the chances of this thing actually being proposed as if it's going to pass are, are probably, probably nothing to worry about. The actual law is something to worry about, but maybe this is just more of a political game. Would, would you view it from that same sort of perspective?
1: Um, Yes and no. I mean, the, uh, the thing that we have going on right now is that uh, they are, I don't think this is going to get through in the current set, you know, in the current sort of period. Mm. So right now, this iteration of the bill is probably not going to go through, mm. but that doesn't mean that they can't reintroduce it later, like that, that this bill isn't a problem. And the Liberal Party has steadfastly defended the notion that there's any problems with it. You know, Mm -hmm. they've said everything in this is is perfect and is hunky-dory and, um, you know, what are you guys getting upset about? So um, they may just, you know, they may be using this as election fodder to try to get elected. Mm. But they may well try to bring this back in exactly the same shape it's in. Or they may not. It may be that this is one of these bills that they float now, you know, try to bang the drum on for an election and then never bring up again. Right. So it's really hard to tell, but I don't think it's safe to assume that it's just not going to be a problem because it really might.
0: Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we're getting a lot of calls, that's for sure, from, uh, from club members, from the general public, from media. Big concern is obviously around the talk of municipal handgun bans. Yeah. And it doesn't even um, seem constitutional, let alone like, how do you affect something like this?
1: Well, the way they're affecting it is actually, and I'm going to have a video out on this. I hope it'll be out tomorrow, but we'll see. Okay. Um, but, uh, they're actually adding it as a condition to people's firearms licenses. Mm. And so, you know, as gun owners, we often say, oh, well, this is targeting law abiding gun owners and not the criminals. And usually what we mean, what we mean by that is that it's going to be something that the criminals will ignore, Mm. but this goes a step further. It's something that the criminals are actually immune to Mm. because you can only be prosecuted under the municipal handgun ban. If you have a handgun license.
0: Oh my God.
1: (laughs) So um, it's literally only, you know, people with a license who can be charged. Man. And so, you know, you and I are at risk from this law, but somebody who's a drug dealer doesn't care. Literally, you know, if they're, they literally cannot face, you know, charges under it, they cannot be convicted under it. Mm -hmm. Um, they are just completely immune.
0: Yeah. That, uh, that makes a lot of sense, you know, (laughs) I mean, come on, give me a break. I mean,
1: it's, uh. You know, it's very clear who they think the problem is when that's what the legislation says.
0: And then another one they're talking about is replicas. Now replicas are already prohibited, but they're. Yep.
1: They're already banned. Uh, what they want to ban now is kids toys. Um, and I mean, I say kids toys, although there are a lot of adults who play airsoft as well, Sure. but they want to ban toys Mm. is what it comes down to. So, um. I mean, there's a lot of people who are super upset by that because, you know, there's a lot of people for whom airsoft is a substantial aspect of their life. You know, they're, uh, they view this as very, uh, you know, significant. I was talking, one guy was saying how, you know, he's a new Canadian and you know, when he came here, he came and found that there, that he had no community. You know, he didn't know anybody here and that Mm -hmm. it's really hard to make friends. Right. It's, you know, as adults, people tend to have their friend groups. You're not typically looking to add more people to socialize with. Mm -hmm. And so what he found was airsoft because, you know, the airsoft community, he could, you know, sign up, like he could show up and people were happy to have him. And, you know, even if his English wasn't great, people were happy to, you know, people were happy to put the effort in because they had a shared interest. Right. And, you know, so he said, these are the people he socializes with. These are the people, you know, this is his community. And he was near tears talking about, you know, they want to break that. Like, what do you mean they want to take this away from me? And I'm going, you know, and you know, people, I had various people from various sorts of walks of life, business owners and so forth, who have all been asking me to, uh, reassure them that the law isn't as bad as it seems. And, um, unfortunately I don't have a whole lot of reassurance for them.
0: Wow. You know, I don't know if I read it correctly, but they were also saying something about, well, we'll make them prohibited, but those who already have them can keep them. was that in there?
1: That was in there. I, Um, uh, yeah, it's bizarre.
0: It doesn't make sense. If people are regular listeners and they've listened to the previous podcast prior to this, one of, um, my solutions for the aerosofters. And it'd be interesting to get uh, somebody like yourself's perspective on this. If it was never designed as a replica to begin with, then it can't be considered a replica. For example, if you have a live firearm that is then deactivated, that is in guts pulled out and put some green gas and parts inside it. Technically, I would think not being a lawyer, then maybe you'd be okay.
1: That one would be legally questionable. Um, the one that's legally not questionable is they make um, airsoft gas shotgun shells, Okay. and these are deliberately sized to not match to any existing gauge of firearm um, because they really didn't want them fitting in an existing gauge of firearm. Mm. But you could um, you could build, you know, a, like 3D print a sleeve or something to uh, to fit into it to make it properly fit into, for instance, a 12 gauge
0: ah, Subchamber. Yep. Yeah.
1: And then you could run around with these airsoft shotgun shells loaded into actual 12 gauges shooting at each other.
0: <laughs> uh, so that just highlights the, um, the level of thought that was put into all this, I'm sure.
1: I mean, really what it comes down to is that the police have never liked airsoft. Mm. Um, they've never seen much purpose for it, you know, as an institution. And, you know, they don't care if you have a hobby that's, you know, enjoyable. Um,
2: mm.
1: you know, quite frankly, I think that they would have been happy to ban hydroponic gardening equipment,
2: mm.
0: you know,
1: just to shut down
0: uh grow ups. shut
1: down grow-ups. Yeah. So, you know, asking the police for a wish list of what they want to ban is not a great way to go about things because the police don't tend to have a whole lot of regard for your rights, for what, uh, you know, for what makes you happy, what fulfills you as a human being. Sure. Because, you know, people say, oh, you don't need this. It's like, well, we actually need a lot more than food, water, air. We have needs for personal fulfillment. We have needs for community. We have mm-hmm. needs for all of these things. And. You know these are ways people satisfy these needs it's going to be interesting because i think mm. that uh, i think that they may have bit off more than they could chew because quite frankly uh, firearm ownership maybe doesn't have a whole lot of sympathy in canada but you know airsoft i think as people are just engaging in a harmless hobby i mean the number of killings with an airsoft gun in canada i think is holding steady at zero <laughs> and the projection for this year is another zero. Yeah. And the projection for the year after that is another zero. So it's.
0: But they, but they look scary. Right. I mean, they I,
1: look scary, but people are responsible with them. And, you know, maybe it's time not to be scared of things that just look scary, you know, um,
0: hundred percent, like. And, and it somebody strikes,
1: having a, you know, wearing a, a mask might look scary, but oh well, you mm, know, get over it.
0: Right. And, and it strikes me, there's already provisions in place. If somebody were to take this scary looking Airsoft, now oh, called absolutely. replica, it, they'll still be charged with a firearms offense if they try and use it at the local liquor store.
1: Yep. Yeah, I mean, if you take an airsoft gun and try to rob a liquor store with it, you will be committing very serious firearm-related offenses. Right. Because airsoft guns are counted as firearms for most of those provisions. They right. just don't need a license. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they, you know, if you point them at another person without a lawful excuse, and, hey, we're playing an airsoft game would be a lawful excuse. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I decided to bring this to the supermarket and shoot people in the parking lot would not be a lawful excuse. Mm. You can get charged with pointing a firearm, which is a very serious criminal offense. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, we're talking about things that are very safe, where, you know, they have a very responsible community. And... You know that community includes a lot of police officers it includes a lot of you know ex-military or current military mm-hmm. it includes a lot of people who just want a hobby to you know blow off a little steam to just feel um feel that community and it sure. enjoys getting some exercise right i mean it's sometimes it's tough to drag yourself out to the gym and get some exercise And the government talks about, oh, well, we need to make sure everybody's, you know, fit and so forth, Mm -hmm. but now we need to shut down this sport that is actually keeping some people fit and in shape.
0: Right. It's easier to run when mm -hmm. someone's chasing you with something that will hurt when they shoot you with it.
1: I mean, that's the thing is, you know, I, I'm terrible about going to the gym. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've got a treadmill in my garage and I make it out to use that thing way less often than I should. (laughs) And you know, my shirts are starting to show it. (laughs) So, um, but when you're out running and you're, you know, you're trying to achieve an objective, you know, you're trying to take that hill, um, you don't really feel it as much. And you're certainly not as bored. Like a treadmill is boring. Mm -hmm. I have trouble running on a treadmill because I have attention deficit and it just, it bores me to death. Uh I'm not bored to death when I'm playing airsoft. I'm. You know, that's exciting. That's, you know, and I come back and my legs are burning, you know, my, my lungs are, you know, I, I've got that ache cause my asthma and so forth, but I've actually got that cardio in. Yes, please. You know, I want more of that in my life, not less.
0: Totally. Tension deficit, huh? Um, so (laughs) I, I was diagnosed with that at an early age and I think I was on the highest dosage of Ritalin in the province up until, uh, about, uh, grade seven there. When I said, that's it, I'm off. And they had me on a, a experimental program. How did you find law school with, uh, is it ADD, ADHD?
1: Um, I mean, they're all, all the the psychologists sort of view them as all the same sort of category yeah. here, just kind of different expressions. I yeah. tend to be more of the daydreamy sort than the bouncing off walls but i mean it's got its own challenges and you uh you have to learn to adapt and you have to learn that sometimes these strategies that work well for other people aren't what works well for you mm. and so you know but i and the other thing that is always a challenge is that if you're known to have you know what is classified as a learning disability um applying for jobs gets fun because mm. people say hey you've got this learning disability maybe we don't want to uh, you know, maybe we're concerned about that, mm. and you know that's more so before you get a chance to prove yourself. You know, when you're just coming out of the gate and you're trying to get a foothold, right? But you know, I've been open about uh, you know what I have to deal with, and you know the fact that uh, you know, and I think I'm better for it. Hopefully, there's other people out there who are thinking, you know, can I be a lawyer with attention deficit? Yes, you can. You're just going to have to figure out how to make it work for you. Mm. Um, but I mean, sometimes it's a matter of like, hey, you've got a deadline. you got to work on that, you know, ahead of time. Or maybe it's just you got to block out a week to do it. And, you know, you're going to have to figure out some other way to manage your other responsibilities. But you need to just turtle up and, you know, sort of grind this out, even if it hurts. Mm-hmm. Um you know, there's different sort of strategies and, you know, good, uh, a good assistant is fantastic. Um, yep. Shout out to Devin here who, i uh, not <laughs> sure where he is at the moment, but uh, uh, for many years he was uh, possibly, I think, the best assistant out there anywhere. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you know, that sort of thing of you got to maintain a good calendar because I can't, remember those dates in my head, right? you know, if it's, and I mean, just no lawyer can, because you just get too many dates and times to, uh, to keep track of, Mm -hmm. but you have to be super good about that because if it's something like, I'll just put this in my calendar when I get back to the office. Oops. Nope. Maybe I won't, you know, that's got to go in the calendar right now. And so, you know, getting in the habit, for instance, of I'm leaving the courthouse, I will sit in my car and put a You know, an entry in the calendar for each of my upcoming appearances, and then, you know, maybe tidy them up back at the office. But if nothing else, I've got that note, Mm -hmm. you know, so you don't miss anything. So all of that is really, uh, and I think you have to be more careful about your moods than many people. I think you have to be more careful about, uh, you know, how you eat, how you, uh, you know, where your head's at because Mm. if you let yourself get into a funk, all of that gets worse and your coping strategies fall to bits. Mm. And if you, you know, I find personally that diet is important, notwithstanding the fact that I drink tremendous amounts of (laughs) Coca-Cola. Caffeine is, I guess my replacement for uh, not on any Ritalin or the like, but, uh, um, but if I eat like, you know, heavy, greasy, fast food, I can feel myself having more struggles than if I'm, you know, sometimes you don't want to eat the salad, but the salad is better for my cognition.
0: That's interesting. I, uh, never even, I never put a correlation between what I ate and how I was feeling until, I don't know, a couple years ago. <laughs> I mean, I, I would eat what I want to eat, obviously try and stay in shape and, and be healthy and all the rest, but the actual physical and mental feeling off of what I eat and how I feel yeah. for whatever reason, my head's just in different places and I never put two and two together. I'm like, I was raised on sugar. My grandfather had a, uh, had a bakery and it was, I don't know, maybe 10, seven, 10 years ago when I finally put that relationship between, wow, that amount of sugar that I'm used to having is actually making me feel like garbage.
1: Well, and I, uh, I mean, one of the things I found is, uh, you know, sushi, I do fantastic on, although it's expensive and not mm. nearly as good here in Alberta as it was in, uh, in Vancouver where I grew up. Right. But uh, you know, I've had things where, um, you know, I have gone to the Supreme Court once and I made sure that the meal I had the night before uh, was something that I knew was going to help me and not hurt me,
0: Interesting. you know,
1: cause it was just like, this is super important. I got to make sure that I'm squared away and, you know, (laughs) that, uh, my brain is going to be in the right
0: place. Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. So speaking of ADHD, if I'm going to quickly change topics, right back to firearms here, uh, if, uh, so storage of non-restricted firearms out hunting, common, common thing we've heard in, in the past, you're sitting around the campfire and it's getting dark out and everyone's concerned about the grizzly bears and. Having a firearm readily available for predator control and under the storage regulations, they say, Hey, it's gotta be unloaded. It's gotta have a secure locking device or rendered inoperable by removing the bolt or bolt carrier or in a container, but it's got a couple of, and it says it can't be readily accessible to its ammunition, but it has a couple of uh, provisions and it says it doesn't really apply the, um. And the whole having a lock on it or having it inoperable doesn't apply if you're going to need it for predator control relatively soon. I'm paraphrasing here. Yeah. And it also says something along the lines of, you don't have to have a lock on it and it doesn't necessarily have to be, um, it can have ammunition readily accessible to it. Uh, if you're in a remote wilderness area, and you're going to be using it for something that's not incompatible with hunting. Yeah. paraphrase. The it.
1: area itself has to be not subject to any reasonably ascertainable use, incompatible with hunting.
0: Right. So. so you know, if that, there's
1: people skiing on that hill, then you can't do that.
0: <laughs> right. Right. So, okay. A, a hunting sort of thing, but of course you can't hunt at night, but that's when everyone's getting concerned about Bruno, the bear coming by. Yeah. I guess a couple of questions that tend to come up as everyone's playing armchair lawyer around the campfire is like, what's a, uh, a remote wilderness area, number one. And I mean, that's going to be probably debatable, obviously not the ski hill and what's hunting. Like obviously the actual act of tracking an animal or maybe setting up and waiting for an animal and we can call that hunting is driving up hunting is getting ready for bed, but we're on a hunting trip and we don't want this bear ripping open the tent. I mean, I, I've got a blog post of one that, uh, just tore apart the side by side and was trying to get into, uh, uh, to the trailer. I would sure feel safer having a firearm that's loaded and ready to go. Maybe not one in the chamber. If I knew that was a, um, uh, a legal thing to do.
1: Well, uh. So the exceptions there are, there's two different exceptions. So one is if you need it for predator control, right? um, you are accepted from the the requirement to have a secure locking device, but not from the requirement that it not be readily accessible to ammunition, Mm -hmm. which to my mind seems to be a little bizarre because you're saying you need to control predators or other animals. And so you don't have to have it locked, but you also can't have the ammunition near it. Which, you know, if you're talking about Bruno the bear is going to be a pretty difficult situation because right. you know, that's kind of a hurried situation. Um, now, there might also be the potential that it might be in use for defense against bears. Mm. But that's, again, going to be kind of fact-specific and a bit of a question. Um, there's also situations about remote wilderness areas that are not subject to any visible or otherwise uh, reasonably ascertainable use, incompatible with hunting. What is a remote wilderness area? Well, whatever the court deems to be a remote wilderness area. And Mm. that's going to be a real, uh, that's going to be a fact specific question, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and you know, it's not always clear what's a remote wilderness area and yeah, it's in all of these cases, it can't be loaded. Which again, if you know you're talking about your tent and the bear, you know comes ripping in, you're probably not going to be able to legally store it in a fashion where it's useful in that fashion.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: there might be an argument that it's being used for bear defense in those circumstances. Mm. You know, so all of this gets tricky and really down to facts. But uh, so I can't really give you an example, you know, give you like here's the hard and fast rules because all of these things are based on some things with some flexibility.
0: Mm. Obviously with the the background that you have on the firearms side and being keenly interested in firearms law based on how vague and poorly written some areas are, and that's kind of a fun game to unpack. Are you familiar with other areas of law that are equally obtuse?
1: I mean, there's some really weird things that come up with impaired law right now. Okay. Um, like one of the things is that it is prima facie illegal to drive home and then get drunk.
0: What? So. To to drive home. Okay.
1: So let's say you are at work.
0: Oh, sorry. It's legal. It's not illegal. No, illegal. Illegal. Okay.
1: Prima facie illegal to drive home and then get drunk.
2: Okay.
0: So
1: let's say you have a really tough day at work or let's say, you know, you get fired, you're having a real rough day. You drive home and as soon as you get in the door, you, you know, put your hat up, you take your jacket off, you, uh, you know, you go in and you just start pouring yourself shots of vodka Mm. and an hour after you get home, the police knock on your door and you go out to talk to them because you're not making good decisions because you've been hitting the vodka Mm -hmm. and the police ask you, when did you get home? And you tell them, because again, not making good decisions. Mm. And the cops say, okay, you're under arrest because you were intoxicated within two hours of operating a motor vehicle.
0: Is this like the Monty Robinson workaround that, that officer who was in an accident, killed a person in. Pretty much.
1: Yep. Um, now, I mean, they charged, if I recall correctly, they charged that person with a, uh, an obstruction of justice. Mm. But, uh, basically what happened is that they, uh, They went through and generated a wish list of all the ways people win impaired trials. Mm. And so this law was basically a wish list of how to prevent people from getting acquitted on impaired charges. And so, you know, there's a defense that's in that law where you can establish that you, you know, that you got drunk afterwards, that you had no reason Mm -hmm. to believe that they were going to ask for a sample. And that your readings are consistent with all of with having been sober at the time. Mm. That's going to be a very expensive defense because the burden is on you and you're going to have to, you know, hire amongst other things, a medical expert. Right. You know, I will tell you that a medical expert is super expensive, Mm -hmm. like not even a little bit cheap. They are way expensive and yeah.
0: Well. Ian, is there anything that we should be talking about before we kind of look at wrapping up?
1: I mean, just things are going to be really exciting in the next little bit, if you're a gun owner, because the liberal party has clearly decided that their path to uh, path to electoral victory is to throw us under the bus. Right. And you know, it's, it's going to be rough. They want to ban a whole lot of things. And partially that's, I think, because they've, you know, every time they have a, a poll dip, Mm. that's what we're seeing. So, um, I mean, criminal law is going to continue to be fascinating from my perspective, but for a lot of the people, you know, out there, it's, there's going to be a lot of people just straight up hurt by this. Right. And I, uh. Uh, I feel for people it's, you know, I've had people who are just absolutely, you know, in, in tears Mm. as to what's happening and what's going to happen with their, you know, livelihood. Um, there was a story of a guy who, uh, uh, just started up an airsoft business set to open sometime this week.
0: Oh man.
1: Can you imagine you're just set to like, you've just sunk your life savings into an airsoft business
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then this just, uh, gets, uh, you know, this just gets dropped on you like, uh. Yeah, devastating. Yeah. You know, let's say your business is you've got an airsoft selling business. Who's going to buy that right now mm-hmm. if you're trying to, uh, you know, try to sell that. So
0: yeah, no one's going to buy it, at least not for the price that they should.
1: Oh, I mean, you know, I would be reluctant to buy one of those for a dollar right now, let alone for, right. uh, so yeah, it's, a uh, rough time. Yeah. I feel for these people. Like there are people legitimately losing, looking at losing, um, their livelihood, looking at losing, um, their profession, looking at losing everything, mm. like literally everything in some cases. And, you know. I, I wish I could do more. That's the, that's all of it is. I just wish I had a better way to, you know, ride in and solve the problems, but all I can do is, uh, sort of try to poke holes where I can, Hmm.
0: so. Well, for the listeners again, that's Runkle of the Bailey. Google it. You'll see, you'll see Ian there when his, uh, Horace Rumpel Homburg hat, the nice, uh, Oh, to the old, old Bailey barrister. And, uh, there'll be links in the bio on that. Please check it out. Ian, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and sharing your knowledge. I really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been a blast.